Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. When I went to college, uh, I went to be an engineer. And I was studying engineering for three years. And one of the most notorious classes that I had to take was Physics 201. It was known as a very difficult class. And I remember the first day that I got to class and the professor told us that if you get 59% and above in the class, you get an A. 49% above a B, 39% above a C, 29% above and a D. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be great for my GPA. This is going to be fantastic. I knew it was hard, so I tried my very hardest. And at the end of the year, like many other people, I ended up with a D plus, which is like 18% or 20, I can't remember, but it's really bad, okay? Majority of the folks got C's in the class, a few got B's, and a very limited few got A's in the class, which means they just got over 59%. It was a very difficult class. And there was one kid in the class named Greg, and Greg was a very normal guy. Uh, You wouldn't pick him out as being particularly, you know, smart, but he was brilliant. Uh, Greg actually got 105% in the class. And I remember the professor saying of Greg, people like that scare me because he was so smart. And so one time I ran into Greg, I, I didn't know Greg that well, but I knew he was brilliant. And so I asked Greg, I said, Greg, what do you want to do when you get out of college? I'm thinking like, you know, NASA or create a time machine or cure world hunger, like something like, like, what do you want to do when you get out of college? And I will never forget his response. He said to me, I want to be a pastor. And I thought to myself, what a waste. What a waste of like a brilliant mind. You want to be a pastor? Kind of ironic today, isn't it? Now that I'm a pastor. But, but he wanted to be a pastor. And I just thought, what a waste of, of a brilliant mind. But as we will see in today's passage, nothing could be further from the truth. You see, while every job except for sinful jobs can be done for the glory of God and we can enjoy God in doing them, what we find out in today's passage is that full-time vocational ministry is a blessed calling in which you get used by God to be one of his primary instruments to bring salvation to the world, especially if you are faithful And if you are a good minister of Christ Jesus. And so if you would, please open up to page 992 in the Red Bible, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verses 10 through 15. Uh, Just as a way of reminder, 1 Timothy is written by God through the Apostle Paul to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, but through Timothy to the churches in Asia and throughout the world, even to today. Uh, The purpose of the book, as Dan had mentioned, is to give God's blueprints for the local church. Last week, in uh, in four verses, verses 6 through 10, we saw a significant 
change in this letter of 1 Timothy. Uh, Paul is no longer addressing the church as a whole, but he is addressing Timothy specifically as a pastor in the church, a minister of Christ Jesus. And he says to him, let me tell you the secret to being a good servant or a good minister of Christ Jesus. Now, if you remember from last week, Paul uh, pointed out three ways that we are called, all of us as a priesthood of believer, to be good ministers of Christ, good servants of Christ, and that we are to feed on God's truth for ourselves and feed God's truth to one another through his word. That we are to live out God's truth because trying for godliness doesn't work, but training for godliness does, and it has great benefit in this world and in the world to come. And finally, he says that we are to hope in God's truth, that the living God is on our side that we are fighting a battle he has already won and that our savior is Christ Jesus. Paul continues as this, as this well-seasoned pastor, church planter, apostle to tell Timothy what it means to be a good minister of Christ Jesus. So let's look together, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 through 16. This is God's word. He says, for to this end we toil and strive, Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, Do not neglect the gifts you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you are so invested in your church, that you love your church, that you have given direction to your church and to the ministers of your church. Pray, God, that we will receive this, that we will learn from it, that we will pray for it, and that we will grow more and more into the church you have called us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In 2019, before the whole COVID thing happened, uh, it was estimated that about 3,000 Protestant churches were planted in one year, about 3,000. In that same year, it was estimated that 4,500 Protestant churches closed their doors. That's in the U.S. That is a net loss of 1,500 churches. Since COVID, it is assumed to be worse. We just don't know because we don't have the statistics. But nonetheless, the trend is going in the wrong direction, it seems. I do think some churches probably needed to shut down. The Lord shut them down because they were unfaithful, but the trend seems to be going in the wrong direction. I was at a church planning conference in St. Louis earlier this year, and some of the statistics that they shared with me just blew my mind as we think about why are more churches not being planted. One of the statistics was that for every 20 places wanting a church plant in our denomination, there is only one church planter available. And for every five locations that have all of the funds to plant a church and all of the leadership to plant a church, there is only one church planter available. People are 
flocking to our denomination because they want a denomination that preaches the word and proclaims the gospel of Christ, but we do not have enough pastors. In fact, that's one reason why I chose to preach through 1 Timothy, is to raise awareness to this and call maybe some of you to enter into pastoral ministry because we have a supply chain issue. We don't have enough people in vocational ministry. Jesus says it this way. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Today's passage tells Timothy to be a faithful pastor. And why to be a faithful pastor? And so there are all sorts of applications for me and for Pastor Spencer and for Pastor David. But what about you? How, how should you hear this passage? How should you listen to this sermon if you are not a pastor? Well, first off, if you are a young person, which we will note Timothy is in some ways here, my hope is that you would consider full-time vocational ministry because we need more qualified, gifted, and faithful men and women in ministry. Yes, this includes women. We saw in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that God has put men to be the spiritual leaders of the church, to preach, to be pastors, to be elders, but women are a vital part of ministry. We have four women on staff here at Jakeswell Church who all have vital ministries in the church. Matter of fact, we hope in the future to hire a woman full-time who is theologically trained simply to minister to the women in the church. We need women in the church. But specifically, what we see here is that we need God to raise up young men to plant churches, to pastor churches, to be missionaries, because the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. So if you are a young person, here's my exhortation to you. You do not have to go into vocational ministry. You don't have to, but you need to prayerfully consider it. You don't have to go into vocational ministry, but you need to prayerfully consider it. If you are a parent or a grandparent, I hope that you would encourage your kids to prayerfully encourage going into vocational ministry because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What about the rest of you? How should you hear or listen to this sermon? Well, maybe you are past your prime and you're not going into vacational ministry, but, but maybe it is good for you to know what to expect in your pastor, in a pastor, regardless of the church you go to, so that you can hold the pastor accountable and pray for that pastor. In addition, if you're here and you're a Christian, what we'll see in this passage is Paul will say to Timothy, be an example to the Christians. In other words, everything he is commanding Timothy to do is to be an example for those in the church to follow. And so it applies to you as well. And finally, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, this passage gives you a picture of how the church is to live and what it means and the urgency to become a Christian. So with all that in mind, let's dive in, seeking to answer this question. What are ministers of Christ to be like? What example are they to set? First off, a minister of Christ, ministers of Christ are to be examples of godly living. Look at verse 11 with me. Paul starts by saying, 
Command and teach these things. We'll come back to this passage in a little bit, but notice Paul is telling Timothy to preach with authority. And what makes this exhortation a little bit uncomfortable is that Timothy is a young guy. And by a young guy, we mean someone that is in their late 20s or early 30s, while most of the spiritual leaders in the community are typically in their 50s or their 60s. And so to have this young buck who's in his early 30s, commanding 60-year-olds seems a bit out of order. But look at what verse 12 says. Verse 12 says, let no one despise you for your youth. And then he shares how you can undermine their despisement of your youth. First and foremost, he says, but set the believers an example. That Greek word for example is typos, which we get the word type from. It's like a statue or a model of godliness. It says, but set believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. You know, youth are often despised because of their immaturity. They are despised because sometimes they are disrespectful, sometimes they are arrogant. Sometimes they are self-centered. Sometimes they are unteachable. Sometimes youth don't serve others. Sometimes youth scroll on their phone endlessly and play video games. Sometimes youth will not make eye contact with folks or ask questions of them or engage with them. Sometimes they are driven by their immature passions. Sometimes youth are very undependable. But guess what Paul says here? Paul says it doesn't have to be that way, youth. Ironically, youth often quote the first part of this verse, which says, don't, despise, don't be despised, don't despise me for my youth. But in their youth, they forget to consider the second part of the verse. How can you not be despised for your youth? It's not simply by quoting the first half of the verse. Paul makes it crystal clear that if you want to be trusted, if you want to be known as credible as a young person, you can only get this by being a model of godliness. Yes, to older believers. So Paul lists out five ways right here that you can be a model of godliness for old fogies like me and like the other gray beards around the church. The first is this, that you can be a model in your speech. The question that Paul has here is, do you talk about important issues? Are you talking about the things of God? Or is everything a joke about passing gas and the human anatomy? right? Do you, do you talk about things by, by caring for folks? Do you ask them questions? Do you listen? Do you engage with them? Do you use filthy language? When you talk, when you text, when you communicate, are you simply talking about who likes who and, and who did what to who? Or are you sharing the good news of Christ with others? Paul says, that if you don't want to be despised for youth, set an older believer in, in your speech. And I know many of our youth here do that and do a lot of these things very well. He continues and he says, you should also set an example in your conduct. In other words, your behavior, the way that you live, seeking to live lives of integrity, being dependable, being repentant when you're not, to conduct yourself in a way that, that is reputable amongst others that you joyfully serve and give of your life and volunteer in your church and in your community and in your schools. You know, I'm always so encouraged by, by the youth, by those in the teens and their 20s in our church who volunteer joyfully to serve the church. 
Because to be honest, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty uh, uncommon. Third, and he turns more internal now. Those are both external things, but now he turns internal, that, that you should be an example in love. This Greek word for love is agape, which means a self-sacrificing love, a charitable love, a devoted love, the type of love that Christ has for us, we are to have for others. You know, being a teenager, being in your 20s is a hard thing. And the temptation is to focus everything on making your life better. But Paul is calling you to look outside of yourself, to look at loving others, not simply looking for others to love you. God is calling us to something greater, calling us to self-sacrificial, painful, joyful, God-glorifying love of God and of others. And so youngsters, if you want to set an example for older believers, do so in speech, in conduct, in love. And then next he says, in faith. By faith, he could mean two different things. One thing he could mean about your faith in Christ, that you trust in God's plan for your life, that you rest in God, that you love Jesus, you celebrate Jesus, you are overwhelmed with the good news of the gospel. But it can also mean faithfulness, just that you are a faithful, consistent, devoted Christian, that you're faithful to prayer, to reading God's word, faithful to coming to church, to serving in church, to being a part of a Bible study with other believers. Are you faithful? And then finally, he calls you to be an example to the older folks in purity. This is talking specifically about sexual purity. Other places talk about it as youthful passions. And it's saying, what are you doing with your boyfriend or your girlfriend? What are you doing on the internet? What is going on in your mind? Are you pursuing purity? And so just to recap, if, if you don't want people to despise you for your youth, you are to be an example so that you can be trusted, so that they can see you as credible. This is what Timothy has to do. He has to gain the credibility to share the gospel. And he must set the example in his speech, in his conduct, in his love, in his faith, and in his purity. In 2008, two brothers that were twins, Alex and Brett Harris, published a book at the age of 16. Uh, this book was written by teenagers to teenagers. And the name of the book is Do Hard Things. And then the subtitle is A Teenage Rebellion Against Low Expectations. The description of the book goes like this. It says, discover a movement of Christian young people who are rebelling against the low expectations of their culture by choosing to do hard things for the glory of God. In the book, we are combating the idea of adolescence as a vacation from responsibility. It is a rallying cry for the heart of revolution already in progress. In the book, they say this, where some might look down on our excuse or excuse young adults, God calls us to be examples. Where our culture might expect little, God expects great things. Goes on and says, when we make decisions to obey God, even when it costs us something, and to live out our faith in our day-to-day -day life, it will be hard, but it will be good. And it will be good because God loves to bless us when we are faithful to stand for him. Do hard things, a teenage rebellion against Low expectations. I ordered some books. I was hoping they'd be here. They'll be here next Sunday, I hope, out there if you're interested in it. But they also have a website. And the website has a clever name. The, the name of the website is The Revolution. The Revolution. Teenagers 
you are often known for your rebellion. But maybe the reason you rebel is because you were made to rebel. The problem is not that you are rebellious. Rather, the problem is what you are rebelling against. Instead of rebelling against godliness and responsibility, maybe now is the time to start rebelling against low expectations. Maybe now is the time to start rebelling against immaturity and ungodliness and schemes of Satan. Maybe it's time to rebel against self-centeredness and foolish talk, to rebel against idolatry of sex and romance and having a boyfriend and girlfriend all of the time. Youth, join the revolution. Rebel against the small and safe dreams of simply earning a paycheck and eking out an existence. Join the revolution. Dream big dreams of what God can use you for. Dream big dreams to be used of Christ in your family, in your neighborhood, in the city, in your workplace, in your school. Because you are not just the future of the church, youth. You are the church. You're the future leadership of the church, but you are the church today. And so God is calling you, is calling you to set an example for all the old fogies around you in your conduct that you might gain credibility to proclaim the goodness of Christ. Second thing, ministers of Christ are to be examples of godly living, but also they are to be devoted to biblical instructing. Look at verse 11 with me again. It says, command and teach these things. This is military language of a superior officer commanding an inferior officer. And the question is, how can Timothy, this young guy, have authority over older guys? After all, it is the elders who are olders in the, in the church typically. And, and Timothy gains credibility to command the elders, the elders in the church through two ways. One way we've already talked about is by how he lives his life. That gives him authority and credibility in the message that he's proclaiming. But the second way that Timothy gets credibility and authority to proclaim, to command and to teach these things, is not from the messenger, but is from the message himself. You see, ultimately, a minister, at least a faithful minister, is just passing along the commands and the teachings of his superior officer, of, of the ultimate commander-in-chief, which is God himself. And that's what Paul makes clear here in verse 13. Look at verse 13 with me. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That is the word of God. That is the command of the commander-in-chief. He says, to exhortation, to teaching. And so Paul starts with the public reading of Scripture. You know, I know other churches where someone will come up and they will read the Bible passage that the sermon is on before the pastor comes up and preach. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that or sinful about that. But to be honest with you, when I read the Scripture passage, that is the truest thing I say up here. I'm like, why would I give that up? And, and, and as we go through the passage, I don't know if you've noticed, but shorter passages of, uh, like this, I try to read through the passage two or three times in the course of the sermon because reading the word of God is powerful and effective through the Holy Spirit to save people and to change our hearts and conform us to the image of Christ. And so he says, read the word of God. But not only should you read the word of God in your preaching, you should also exhort the word of God, exhort the scriptures. That is, call people into action, call people into obedience, call people into living the good life as God has commanded us to do. 
And so we should read the scripture, we should exhort from the scripture, but we should also teach the scripture. Hopefully that's what I'm doing right now, where, where you're kind of pulling apart the passage and you're explaining it in its context and understanding who the author is, understanding who the audience is, and then also applying it to our current time. You know, at Jake's Well Church, we do this thing called expository preaching. Some people know what it means, some people don't know what it means, but it's more or less just verse-by-verse teaching of the Bible. Expository preaching is, is letting the Bible speak for itself to expose what is in the passage there. And the, the expository preaching uh, makes up our main points and our subpoints. It, it guides the sermon. You know, I always say that the difference between an expository preaching sermon and a topical sermon is in a topical sermon, the title is the very first thing you come up with. But in an expository sermon, the title is almost the last thing you come up with because you let the passage drive what you are preaching. You know, it's so important. God may call you away from Jacob's Well Church, or, or you might just be visiting but it's so important that you find a church that preaches the word of God, that it teaches the word of God, that exhorts from the word of God. Several years ago, I remember uh, there was a, a youth who, who was at our church for a few years, then went off to college. And one Saturday night, I was at a coffee shop working on the sermon. And she came in and we were catching up. And she said to me, she said, Pastor Dan, you ruined church for me. And, and immediately I'm like, oh no, what did I do? And I'm going through my mind thinking, what do I need to repent of? What did I do wrong? And she said, you know, we came to Jacob's Well Church when I was, I don't know, middle school and were there for a few years and got used to this verse-by-verse teaching of the Bible and I took it for granted. And then I went off to college and I was looking for churches that would teach the Bible and it was impossible to find a church that simply taught the Bible. And then I thought, okay, (laughs) I'm okay ruining church in that way for you, right? Like, I feel better about myself. But here's the thing, regardless of denomination, there are great churches and other denominations, regardless of denomination, find a church that preaches the word, that teaches the word, that exhorts from the word, that applies the word to your life. Paul continues, and he says in verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, that is for Timothy, the gift of preaching, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. That is a description of an ordination service for a pastor. And so Paul is saying, don't get lazy, right? Don't neglect your gift. Use it for the good of the church. Verse 15, he says, practice these things. You practice so you can grow, so you can get better. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Literally live within this giftedness so that all may see your progress. Timothy was given the gift of preaching. But let me ask you, because I know most of you recoil at the thought of public speaking. How has God gifted you for the church? Has God gifted you in administration, giving, evangelism, faith, helps, hospitality? Has God gifted you in knowledge, leadership, mercy, wisdom, or some other way? You see, God has gifted you if you are a Christian because God has given spiritual gifts to all of his children. And Ephesians 4 tells us why God has given us these gifts. He says that God has given gifts to us for this reason, for the building up of the body of Christ, which is his church. 
In the movie Superman, it's said that with great power comes great responsibility. You have been given great power in your spiritual gift, and it comes with great responsibility, which is to use your gift for the building up of the body of Christ. And so we are not to neglect our gifts. We are not to hoard the gifts to ourselves. We are not to be lazy in our gifts, but we are to practice our gifts and use our gifts for the benefit of Christ's church. Now, you may be here and you may say, I have no idea what my gift is. That's okay. Ask your friend. Ask someone who knows you well. They can probably tell you what your gift is. If they don't know, that's okay. Try a bunch of different things out. See what sticks. See what comes easy to you that is hard for others. But what is so important is that we do not neglect to use the gifts that God has given to us because the way that God describes it is that we are like one body with many parts. And so if God has gifted you to be a foot in the church and you are sitting on the sidelines and refuse to serve the church as a foot, we are a one-footed church. It's not very good. One of the greatest gifts God has given to Jacob's Well Church is you to use your gifts to build up the body of Christ. Now, there are seasons you need a Sabbath, you need a rest. I'm all for that. I get it. But if you are simply sitting on the sidelines, now is the time to jump in the game and to use your gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. Do not neglect the gifts that God has given to you. And so ministers of Christ are to be examples of godly living, devoted to biblical instructing and using our gifts in that way, as you are called to use your gifts in the church, but also, thirdly, to persist in close watching, to persist in close watching. 1 Timothy 4.16, verse 16, he says this, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep a close watch on these two things, Paul says, on yourself, meaning your lifestyle, your godliness, but secondly, your teaching, literally means your doctrine. We talked about this last week with orthodoxy and orthopraxy, if you remember this. But these things are so intertwined together. They're like, they're like two, two ropes on a pulley. If you let go of one or the other, you will fall to the ground. And this is what makes and breaks a lot of ministers today. Sadly, there are thousands of examples. You could probably share some with me, but let me just give you a few here. There's a guy named Joshua Harris who was a famous megachurch pastor. And many years ago, he wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Maybe you read it. Maybe you remember it. But in July of 2019, he announced that he had undergone a massive shift in regards to, he says, my faith in Jesus. By all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, he says, I am not a Christian. When I heard this, my immediate thought was, I bet he's getting a divorce, or I bet he's having an affair. And sure enough, you find out shortly after, by the way, I'm divorcing my wife and leaving my family. You see, the way that someone lives and what they believe are so interconnected that you can't depart from one and keep the other. When someone leaves the ministry, when someone leaves the faith, my initial thought is, there must be an affair going on because that is almost always the case. You see, people don't necessarily leave Christianity because they believe it is untrue. It's because they don't want to practice what the scriptures say. Just last week, I had a friend share with me that they bumped into one of the old elders at their old church who had left the faith. 
And they were still married, and so that wasn't the reason they had left the faith and wondering, you know, why did, they, why did he leave the faith? Why did both of them leave the faith? And what, as they asked questions and pressed in, what they found out was that their son was in a lifestyle that was very unbiblical, and instead of condemning their son's lifestyle and loving their son, they decided instead to condemn Christianity and approve of their son's lifestyle. Rarely. Rarely. Sometimes sometimes people just say, you know, I don't think Christianity is true. Sometimes that happens. But typically what happens is people say, I want to live a lifestyle or approve a lifestyle that is inconsistent with the word of God. And so I will completely abandon the faith to follow this sinful lifestyle. And so Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself, how you live, and on the teaching, your doctrine. And the reason why we must do this is because there is a lot at stake. As he goes on, he says, persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let me me start with yourself. I need you to know. It's funny, the other day, someone said they were driving to church, and they're like, do you struggle with sin? And the kid's like, yeah, but Pastor Dan doesn't struggle with sin. I struggle with sin all the time. Like, your pastor is a very weak person, okay? Even the best pastors make horrible saviors, just so you know, all right? But, but I struggle with sin mightily. And it is very tempting to dive off the deep end and pursue a sinful lifestyle. That is very tempting for me. And because of that, I'm a part of a small group. I'm a part of accountability. Because of that, I want to teach the word of God, study the word of God. Not because I'm strong, but because I'm weak. Matter of fact, all of your pastors are very weak men. All of them could abandon the faith and pursue a sinful lifestyle. That's why we need you to pray for us. That's why we need you to hold us accountable. That's why we need to be in community, because we are weak men. And we need to watch closely our life to save both ourselves, but also our hearers. You know, the reality is the way that you live your lives, the what you believe has far more effect on the people around you than you may know. Especially for a pastor. If a pastor forsakes the faith, starts preaching another gospel, if he wanders away from the word of God, it not only affects him, but affects his congregation. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, puts it in this way. And I try to put in modern English a little bit, but he says this. He says, how many souls have blind ministers been means of destroying by their ignorance? Preaching that was no better for their soul than rat's poison to the body. Many of ministers, it is to be feared, have the whole town to answer for. Will it grieve you to see the whole church come bellowing after you into hell? Crying out, this we have to thank you for? You were afraid to tell us of our sins? Blind guide as you were, to fall into the ditch, but also to lead us there with you. Many of you know Gary Drusiski, and Gary would often say to me, I'm praying for a better pastor. And I would say to him, pray harder, brother. Pray harder, because you need a better pastor. And I tell you what, I'll pray for a better congregation. We are weak people in and of ourselves. We need each other. Our growth in godliness is a community project. We need to guard our lives and our doctrine 
fiercely. We need to watch closely over it. And so ministers of Christ who are to be an example to you are to be examples of godly living, devoted to biblical instructing and persistent and close watching on their life and their doctrine. Let me end with this and keep your Bibles open because we're going to come back to verse 10 here in a little bit. There is a famous theologian named D.A. Carson. If you ever study theology, you probably heard of him. And he has a not famous father who was a pastor, and his name was Tom Carson. And D.A. wrote a book about his father called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, The Life and Reflections of Tom Carson. I think we have a picture up there of it for you. In a review of the book, Michael Abraham, who is an associate pastor in Dubai, says this of the book. He says, some pastors are extraordinary, like Charles Spurgeon, Some of them are famous for their eloquent preaching. Others, like John Owen, are known for their writing or theological insight. Even of the Arabian Peninsula, where I pastor, most Christians know names of John Piper, Mark Dever, John MacArthur. Famous pastors are nothing new. Christ's church has always had men with extraordinary talent in the pastorate. But most of us will never be famous. Extraordinary pastors. You may recognize the name Don Carson, but do you know his father, Tom? Tom has, was a husband, father, church planter, and pastor in Quebec, Canada. His ministry last, lasted roughly from 1933 to 1992, which is 60 years. And he pastored during difficult days of persecution. Tom was not a famous pastor, but more importantly, he was a faithful pastor. In these memoirs, Carson shares lessons we can learn from his dad's ministry. He reminds pastors that the God of Augustine, Calvin, Spurgeon, and Piper, who are all famous preachers, is no less the God of Tom Carson and of you and me. See, God is not looking for extraordinary pastors. He's looking for faithful, ordinary pastors because he is an extraordinary God. And he can do with ordinary pastors extraordinary things. And that's what Paul is exhorting Timothy to in verse 10. So look at verse 10 with me. We're wrapping up with this. But he says, for to this end, we toil and strive. We preach. We live godly lives. We seek to speak with maturity because we have our hopes set on the living God. Not on pastors, but on the living God who is the Savior of all people through Jesus Christ, especially of those who believe. This is such good news for pastors that God's salvation in the world, although we get to be instruments of it, is not up to us. Rather, it is up to God himself. He is our hope, for he is the one who sent Christ into the world to live a perfectly godly life unlike any other pastor has done, to take the sins of the world upon himself, to die on the cross, and to raise to give us newness of life and salvation. It is through Christ, it is through Christ that any pastor's ministry is effective because it is God working through Christ's spirit, the Holy Spirit, to change and transform and save the world. And so how should we respond to this text? Maybe today God is calling you to pray for better pastors at Jacob's Well Church. Please pray harder. We have a long way to go. Maybe today God is calling you to encourage young men and women to prayerfully consider going into vocational ministry. Or maybe, just maybe, God is calling you to consider prayerfully vocational ministry, to be an ordinary pastor with an extraordinary God. Remember Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, 
but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's do that right now. Lord God, we come before you today, and we are so thankful that there are so many people who want a church, who want more of Jesus, who want more of your word. And yet, God, it brings this great heartache that the labors are few. And so, God, pray that you would even raise up our children from within our church, 20-somethings here, maybe even older folks who are headed towards retirement, to go into ministry, to go into this glorious occupation where we get to proclaim salvation to the world through Jesus Christ. Raise up laborers, Lord God, that more people can know the glory of Christ, the goodness of your word, and the salvation that you have brought to us through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.